asked, what does it look like to be a Christian? This verse is the most profound way of putting it. And so I wanted to slow down a little bit, and I want to walk through it, and we're going to do it the same way we would usually do it, by looking at what it says, by coming to understand what it says, and then by applying it to our lives. We're just going to do it at a little bit closer of a look. Uh, we're going to take our general microscope and move it from the 10 times zoom to the 100 times zoom, and really uh, draw all we can out of this single sentence here. So, read with me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's pray. God, for those of us here who identify as Christians, this study is worthwhile because we get the opportunity to reacquaint ourselves with the profound miracle that is our salvation. And for those who are not Christians, they have the opportunity today to see uh, in a significant way exactly what it is we're talking about, why we make a habit of gathering, why we have realigned our life and make the choices that we make. Um, I pray for all of us that through your promised Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes and our heart this morning. And that through the simplicity of this single sentence, you would continue the transformation that you promised us. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, I really just want to walk through this bit by bit. Almost, almost word by word. And so it's appropriate that we start with that first word, therefore. You see, although sometimes uh, we may treat the Bible like a phone book, a phone book of promises or a phone book of facts, and so we just thumb through, we pick a verse and we meditate on it, um, we have to take things where we find them. We have to keep them in their context. And this word, therefore, helps us to do this. Paul is only able to come to this conclusion about what the Christian life is because of the facts that he's presented before this. And so I want to dial back just a few verses and have you read along with me what he says, starting in verse 14. He's talking here about him and other missionaries, other apostles, the people who helped plant the church in Corinth. And he says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's the foundation. That's what underlies the therefore statement. What he says is, when you look at the cross of Christ, when you look at the one who died, that's who he's talking about, Jesus, it changes the way we view everything else. It becomes the centerpiece, um, the focal point, and it puts everything else in a different perspective. It becomes the sun of our solar system, and everything else revolves around it. But what he specifically says is, we believe if one died for all, then therefore all died. Okay. Now, 
we'll come back and we'll unpack this later, but I want you to understand this morning that what he's about to say that follows the therefore is built on this foundation. In other words, the pattern is this. Because this happened to Jesus Christ, we have become. Because God did this in Jesus, we are now. Okay? The focal point, the foundation, the bedrock is what Jesus has done. And notice, interestingly enough, it's not just because Jesus came. It's not just because Jesus taught. It's not just even because Jesus died. It's because in Christ we all died, or specifically because Jesus died for us, on our behalf, in our place. That's the foundation of the statement that follows. If you're going to understand the significance of what the Bible proclaims as the good news, it focuses on this fact, the substitutionary death of Christ, that Jesus died in some sense, in some way, instead of us, in some sense, in some way, on our behalf, in some sense, in some way, as we see here, with us included, because he says if Jesus died, then we all died with him, okay? And so he says, therefore, and then what follows there in verse 17, if anyone, I I want you to hear that, if anyone, okay, when he says if anyone is in Christ, he says two things that we generally try and keep separate, but really actually have to go together. One I want you to notice is the inclusiveness of this statement. It's anyone. Paul doesn't talk about himself. He doesn't just say, since I am in Christ. He doesn't say, if the upper echelon, the A string. He doesn't say, (coughs) if the saints, right? He uses the biggest word we have to talk about people collectively. Anyone. Okay. And we see this throughout Jesus' ministry. Think of the way that he spoke. If anyone comes to me and drinks... All who labor and are heavy laden, let them come to me. He uses these big, inclusive invitations, and we see the same thing here. Whatever this says this morning is available to anyone. But then it's followed, this broad, inclusive, is followed by an exclusion. It has a boundary. It's an invitation, but it's not a fact about all people. He says, if anyone is in Christ... So the invitation is broad, but the description is exclusive. And once again, this is always the way Jesus was. And so he makes these broad invitations, but he also says things like, strive to enter the narrow gate. For the way is broad that leads to destruction, but it is the narrow gate that leads to life. He invites all But what the Bible has to say, what it calls the good news, is only available or received would be a better way to put it, to some. Imagine that God has written an invitation. According to this, how is it addressed? Anyone. All. But those who have opened the invitation and have read inside have actually received whatever it is that God wants to say. And so what is this restriction? What is this line he draws? He says, if anyone is in Christ, 
Think of how strange that statement is. Do your best this morning to find a comparative description. What other religion says, if anyone is in Muhammad, if anyone is in the Buddha, what nation says, if anyone is in their leader, what corporation says, yes, we're all in Jeff Bezos? What it says here is significant because it's so unique, it's so different. It's not limited to if anyone believes Christ. It's not limited to if anyone follows Christ. It's not limited to if anyone accepts. It says something deeper. All those other things are true about these people. But it says something more significant. He says to be in Christ. Jesus uses a similar way of describing. Uh, if you want to understand Paul's way of articulating what God has done in Jesus Christ, in Christ is probably the best description. Just go ahead, pick Ephesians, read back through 1st or 2nd Corinthians, select Galatians or the book of Romans, and just go through with a pen or mentally count the times he says things like, in him, in Christ. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 alone, he says it over a dozen times. If you're going to understand the Christian life, you have to understand that it's a life in Christ. But what does it mean? Jesus, like I said, gives us a similar metaphor. The word he uses is abide. That's the word in John's gospel that Jesus uses, abide in me. And this is the illustration he gives us. He says, speaking to his disciples, I am the vine and you are the branches. Okay, he's speaking here of grapes. He says, I am this, I don't know if you've ever had a grapevine. We had one as a kid. Uh, I am this massive, starting at the roots and flowing through the whole plant, plant major vine. And the offshoots of that are the branches. That's the relationship that Jesus makes between him and his disciples. Okay? And so just follow the metaphor through for a second. What if those branches are not connected to the vine, but they're really, really close? They're laying in proximity. We're talking about something different, right? What he goes on to say is, abide in me and you will bear fruit. He says, the life that produces, that changes, that makes in your life flows through Jesus and into you, okay? And so he says, the secret, the Christian life, is abiding, to be in. Now, Paul actually is saying something a little bit more significant here, because he's not saying, be in Christ, he's saying, you are in Christ. But what does he mean? Well, remember what came before the therefore. He says, we believe that if one died for all, then all died. And so what he's saying is, in some significant way, we died in Christ. In some significant way, when Jesus was raised, we were raised in Christ. In some significant way, in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, therefore we have been raised in Christ and seat, seated in the heavenly places. At the very least, this means a joining between the fate of Jesus Christ and our fate. Our destiny now coincides with his destiny. 
Our life now coincides with his life, but it means more than that. When it says here, in Christ, it means that we have so identified with Jesus that we are now a part of him. In fact, there's a corresponding here with what's about to come. What does he say? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Okay, now we're going to look at that phrase pretty deeply this morning, but I want you to think of the other descriptions of the Christian life. The Bible uses many different ways to describe what happens in Christ, but like that friend who you discover deeper and deeper relationships that are more and more significant, they can be ordered. And so, yes, the Bible says, come and follow me. Those are the words of Jesus. And so one of the ways it describes the Christian life is as if you are following Jesus. In fact, the word for the early church to self-identify as a Christian was disciple. Now, a disciple and a student are two different things, just a side note, okay? A student is a student of a topic. A disciple is a student of a teacher, okay? So there's still an identification there. But what it says here in New Creation is deeper than that. Another way that the Bible puts what happens for us in Jesus Christ is that we are set free, right? That's a major metaphor the New Testament uses, that we were slaves and we have now been set free, okay? But new creation is something more significant than that. Another one the Bible uses is healing. In fact, did you know that when you're reading in the Gospels and it says your faith has healed you, most of the time that's just the Greek word for saved? That it's such a broad term, it refers not only to salvation, this big topic that the New Testament is always talking about, but also physical healing and even militaristic deliverance. It's a very broad term, okay? But new creation goes different. Even the idea of resurrection is a primary way of describing the Christian life. But I would argue this morning that resurrection, as we often think of it, that we were dead and are now alive, is not as deep as this statement this morning. And I'll tell you why. Because the problem the Bible presents is not merely that we need direction. And so we just need the right person to follow. The Bible doesn't say we have lost our way. It says we have gone astray. Those are two different things. It's not like we got distracted by a squirrel and got off the trail and didn't find our way back. We were walking on the trail and went, I think I have a better way to go. And so the problem, by limiting the Christian life to just following the teachings of Jesus or the example of Jesus or even following Jesus himself, is you're the same rebellious person you were before you met him. And there's nothing to stop you from straying off the path again. When we look at healing, there are a few occasions where Jesus heals someone and then he says something really significant. He says, go and sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you. Here's the thing we have to recognize if we're going to talk about healing. Some of our diseases are self-caused. Some of them are just great expressions of our own choices and the reality of the world of consequences. And so God can, in that sense, set us right and we can go back into our danger and self-destruction and destroy ourselves again. 
even when it's resurrection. In John chapter 11, Jesus comes to a man who's been laying in a grave for four days, a man named Lazarus, and he speaks, and out comes Lazarus at the tomb alive. But Lazarus died again. Of course he did. What it says here in new creation is something more significant. Let me just press it home one more time. Go back to that idea of being set free. When we talk about slavery today, when we talk about being set free, when we use this metaphor, the primary lens we look at is through the lens of oppressor and victim. Okay? Slaves didn't get there by choice. Slaves don't want to be there. And slaves need help to be set free because they're under someone else's power. But a major version of this in the times of the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament was the debtor. Someone who had sold themselves into slavery because they had mishandled their funds and had nothing left to pay their debts. Okay. And I think we understand that. The, the thing is, maybe you've experienced this. You make one really clearly but small poor choice. You make it. You choose to do it. You think about it. You mull over it. Maybe you even resist it for a while. And then the choice becomes an occasional. And then the occasional becomes a routine. And then the routine becomes a habit. And the habit becomes a shackle. And maybe at some time you could go, yeah, I made this choice, but now there's no choice in the matter. That's the way the Bible describes how life works, how sin works. This is what Jesus says. If anyone sins, he is a slave to sin. And so, yes, maybe Jesus storms the prisoner of war camp and sets us all free. But if it's not deeper than that, what's to stop us from walking back into that camp, slapping on those same shackles all over again? What does he say here this morning? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is not a change in circumstances. This is not a superficial change. This is change in the deepest sense. Everything else we're going to talk about in this series is a change. If you know Jesus, it will change your behavior. It will change the way you talk. It will change how you think. But this, this is the change. This is the one that leads to all those other things. This is the root. Those are merely the fruit. And if you misunderstand this, you will misunderstand Christianity. And that's dangerous not only if you're not a Christian this morning and trying to understand, it's also dangerous if you're a Christian and you forget or neglect this truth. Now, I want to clear up something else as well that's probably not apparent. When it says new creation here, the word for new is selected intentionally. There's two Greek words that can be translated in English new, and Paul uses a particular one. One is new in time, okay? The other is in new quality, okay? So when I say we got a new car and then I adjust and go, well, it's not a new car, but it's new to us, right? That's not an inappropriate use of the word new, okay? It's new as in we had an old car and this is the new one, but it's not a new car, okay? I'm afraid that for many of us, the way we view Christianity, which is not untrue, it's just not the deepest truth, it's not the controlling truth, it's not the whole truth, 
is as a fresh start. We own up to what the Bible says and we say, yes, I've made a mess of my life. I'm in need of forgiveness. And what we think Christianity is, is just a reset. I often play video games with my kids. They're young. They play the old torturous games that I grew up on, and sometimes they're hard. And I might be able to sit down in any given game where they're just dying over and over again and put in a code and give them infinite lives. That's not necessarily going to make them clear the level. And that'd be a, an, a misunderstanding of what the Christian life is. It's not just an infinite amount of attempts and restarts to get things right. This is a flawed illustration, but it might help you. It's more like me sitting down and putting hands on my child's hands and playing it with them. That's different, okay? There's a difference between them playing this game and me. My muscle memories, my knowledge, my skills, my excellence, okay? Even that, though, is so limited in what we're talking about. Because this is not just Jesus going, let me help you with that, and reaching around you and doing it, you know, uh, in that way. It's something deeper than that. It's something internal. The new here is new in quality. What I'm saying here is that becoming a Christian is two things. One, it's miraculous. It's a change. And two, and this is always implied when we talk about miracles, it's not something you do for God, it's something God does to you. That's clearly what it means here when it says new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And you go, well, that's a great thing to read, but I've been a Christian a long time and I feel like I'm pretty much the same person. In fact, that can be one of the hardest things about the Christian life is we look at him and we go, why am I still doing this? Why am I still thinking this way? Why haven't these things changed in my life more significantly? It's easy to misunderstand here, so it's helpful to look at a few other places where Paul talks about the same thing. Okay. In fact, notice how he goes on. He says specifically, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And then what does he say at the end of verse 17? He says, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. What does it mean? What does it mean if anyone's in Christ, the old has passed away? Let's start there. Because for many of us, if you've been a Christian for a while, you might have experienced this when you first became a Christian. There were certain things, certain shackles, certain chains, that, and you just, you understand that metaphor of being set free because that's what it felt like. You had addictions that were broken. You had behaviors that were inappropriate that were changed. You found things going on that shifted. But sometimes they come back. Or there's other things that seem like impenetrable fortresses that you can't overcome. And that's not unique to you, by the way. That generally describes all Christian experience, even Paul. That's why he says in Romans 7, the things that I want to do, those aren't the things that I do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I practice. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Listen, very clearly, according to the New Testament, what Jesus has began in you, he has not yet finished. 
And the way that we should look for the new creation is not seeing if there is still corruption. I'll explain this in just a second. But if there is truly new life. But let me explain from another passage where Paul talks about these things. Listen to what he says in the book of Romans. I wish I could spend time walking you through all of Romans chapter 6. It's so significant for the Christian life. We don't have time for that this morning. I just want to highlight one thing Jesus says. What does it mean when it says the old has passed away? I want to start by just reading part of the chapter through so you can hear the same nuance, the same notes, to understand that it's the same topic. So notice what he says in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Do you hear the in Christ there? Do you hear the connection with the cross? If Jesus died for us, then we died for him. If Jesus rose for us, then we rose with him. Now listen to what he says next in verse 6. We know that our old self, what were we talking about? The old things have passed away. He's talking about the same thing here. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Do you see how he connects the two metaphors? We're talking about this one of new creation and he uses it to explain freedom being set free. How is it that we're no longer a slave to sin? He says, because the old person we were has been brought to nothing. Okay. Now this word, once again, is a very particularly important uh, selection in the Greek. It doesn't mean annihilated. It means rendered inoperative. Let me use a metaphor. The problem as the Bible paints it is a lot like being under the control of someone stronger than yourself. That's those habits. That's those addictions. That's that rebellion we find. It's not always that we want to do the right thing or the wrong thing, although we do. Sometimes we want to do the right thing and we can't. And so it's like you're trying to do something and somebody stronger is forcing you to do it. Okay? Wrestling you into submission to say uncle, to follow through. This word for render inoperative, it's as if his spine has been broken. And he's now lame from the neck down. Okay? He no longer has the power. For the Labyrinth fans, this is Jennifer Garnier in the last scene saying, you have no power over me. That is the change. But it doesn't mean that it's no longer present. It doesn't mean that it no longer speaks. It doesn't mean that it no longer suggests, but you were free from its influence. The old has been rendered inoperative. It's no longer in control. It's moved out of the captain's chair. In fact, what the Bible says about new creation, because it says, the old has passed away, behold, 
the new has come. And that phrase there in 2 Corinthians, the new has come, is in the perfect tense. It's here to stay. Okay. Also, is speaking of something similar to this. This is how Peter puts it. Okay. Peter was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, walked with Jesus, and he says this in 1 Peter. He says that we are now partakers of the divine nature. He says that there's some way in the Christian life that God's own nature is now becoming part of us. You see, in other words, we were in Christ and therefore Christ has come to be in us. This is what the Bible means when it talks about the Holy Spirit taking up residence in our lives. God himself is now in us so that we are the temple of the living God. That is the beginning of the new creation. In other words, the way Christianity works is not from the outside in. It's not just follow these things, go through these motions, and we'll just change your behaviors, and over time that will change your heart. Just fake it till you feel it. No, it's more significant than that. You have had a divine heart transplant. That's how the Old Testament puts it. God says there's coming a day in the book of Ezekiel, there's coming a day where I will take out your heart of stone and I will put it in a heart of flesh. I will take out your desires and I will put in my desires. Think of how Paul puts it in another place when he says, but we have the mind of Christ. Does that mean you no longer have the mind of the old man? No, you have both now. What we're talking about in the Christian life is not just a disabling of the old man, but an imparting of the new man. That's what it means when it says new creation. It means that God significantly at the core of your being has changed something. And that makes the Christian life possible. That's what salvation is. As I was reading in commentators yesterday, one of the people I read was Charles Spurgeon, who was a preacher in London in the 1900s. Almost the 1800s, way back. And he points out that there's kind of a description of, of life as a Christian understands it. There's without Christ, there's in Christ, and then there's with Christ. Without Christ is the world as it is, as you were born, as we know it. In Christ is what we're talking about this morning. With Christ is what we generally call heaven. All right? But there is no with Christ unless you're in Christ. And although salvation culminates in being with Christ, you will not be the person you are now with Christ. You can't be. Read the tail end of the book of Revelation. Even Jesus says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Something drastic has to change first. God is so good and so righteous and so holy, the tiniest leftovers of your sinful self have to be dealt with. But God doesn't just go, start again. Maybe you'll make it through this time. He doesn't just reset the clock and say, why don't you take another lap? He doesn't lay out a training regimen and say, maybe if you eat better, maybe if you really work out more, 
Maybe if you, you know, train underwater. It's none of those things. It's something so much more significant about that. There's something so much deeper going on. What the Bible says happens in salvation is that God comes to reside in us and changes us from the inside out until we become like Christ. Listen to how Paul puts it in another place. This is in Galatians. Once again, you'll hear the same language. Galatians 2.20. This is one of those tattoo verses. He says here, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See how parallel that description is? Jesus died for me. I died with Christ. Therefore, the life that I now live, it's not me who lives anymore. It's Christ living in me. And he says, how is this accomplished? By faith in the Son of God. Here's why this is important. Because I think many of us, many of us in this room have experienced the miracle that's being talked about. And then we face our present tense problems, our current circumstances, and we do a handful of things. One of them is we start to make excuses or despair and we go, this is just, just who I am. That's probably true. It's good to remember that. But that's only lesson one. That's only the first part of that truth. There's a deeper truth. Okay? It's not merely you anymore. You're no longer bound by the powerful one who used to control you, the old man who would wrestle you to his will. He's still present. In a sense, he's still you. But that's not the whole truth. Here's the second way it goes wrong. Not just to despair, but to strive. We go, okay, I'm a Christian now. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I've got this thing in my life. And then we just throw the full strength of our own self at it as if that's the truth of the gospel. We go, I just need to try harder. I know God's ashamed for me of me and my behavior. I just need to figure this out. I just need to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. No. God doesn't just give you a new chance with the old life. He gives you a new life and says, why don't you try this? What does it look like practically? It looks like crying out for deliverance. It looks like dependence upon God. Let me make this clear to you, that the mature Christian life is not one of an increasing independence, being able to do things more and more on your own without any help. The mature Christian life is one of deepening dependence, of more and more leaning into, relying upon, and working from the power of Christ. Why does Paul hit this in Galatians? Because the church in Galatia is forgotten. And so he says, you foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? God did this miraculous thing. He started it with his power, with his spirit, by doing something in you. Are you now going to become a better Christian by doing it on your own? What salvation was is what salvation is, is what salvation will be, and it's Jesus. 
And that should fill you with tremendous hope. The old things have passed away. Let me speak to you this morning that the old things still loom large. Maybe they're not even things you're currently engaged with, but they still define you. They still shape you. The guilt that Christianity is supposedly supposed to deal with, yours still seems to be there. The old things have passed away. When God looks at your life, he's not still thinking about those things. You want to know how the psalmist puts it? He says, this is what forgiveness is like. I've taken your sins and I've thrown them in the bottom of the sea. They're gone. If you're not a Christian this morning, here's here's what I want you to understand. Christianity isn't a way of life. It's life imparted. It's not something we do for God. It's something God has done for us and does in us. All of those other things are true. You have to hear the teachings of Jesus. You have to follow him. You have to obey his voice. You are truly set free from your sins and forgiven. You are no longer a slave. All those things are true, but what the Bible is really talking about is nothing short of new creation. And here's the best news. The one doing the creating is the creator. We can't think of what this phrase means, new creation, written in the pages of this book without thinking of creation in the beginning. What happens there? There's a world of darkness and chaos and God says, let there be light and there was light. What does he do after he's given it light and shape? He fills it with life. That's a good description of what God does in the new creation. First, it begins with an enlightening. You see the world as it really is, yourself as you really are, God as he really is. Suddenly, the truth is true. Then, God starts to fill it with life. All the other changes that we're talking about in this series, any other place that the Bible gives a command or a promise, it flows from this centerpiece. Salvation is a work that God does in us by faith, through uniting us with the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, that might make us sound crazier than ever. And I get that. And so I want to draw your attention to one last thing as we close. Go back and look at verse 16 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says here, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. He's saying, if all died in Christ, then we no longer just think of people as they are. We think of them through the lens of what happened in Jesus. Those who are Christians died with Christ. That changes the way we treat them. Those who are not Christians have potentially died with Christ, so that changes the way we treat them. Okay? But I want you to notice what he says finally. He says, 
Uh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What is he saying here? Now, when he says according to the flesh, that doesn't mean as a physical person. It means as human beings generally think. Okay? According to the flesh means the way we normally think about other people. With Martin Luther King Day, it would be really appropriate to slow down, but next week we're talking about reconciliation, so we'll return to this idea of how it impacts the way we see and treat other people. But for now, what does he say about Jesus? He says, we no longer regard him merely with the eyes of the flesh, merely through the lens of the world, through our own understanding. But he does point out that that's where it began. Do you see that? He says, even if we did. You see, sometimes we miss this, but Paul was present during Jesus' ministry. We know that. He doesn't appear in the pages of, God, of the gospel because he's not an active member, but he's heard Jesus teach. He's familiar with him. He was part of the Sanhedrin that eventually puts Jesus to death. He's there. And the questions he asks is, is Jesus a teacher of truth or a teacher of falsehood? He asks, is Jesus a prophet or not a prophet? He asks, is Jesus the Messiah we were expecting or not? Those are the questions he asks. And the answers of all of those he comes to, it's not that they're no longer relevant. Who does he talk about? Jesus the truth. Jesus the Messiah. He comes to those conclusions on the road to Damascus when he encounters Jesus for himself. Not just Jesus the itinerant preacher, but Jesus the risen Lord. But he knows the deeper significance of who Jesus is. So this is my encouragement to you. Look at what Jesus said. Look at what Jesus did. Weigh the reality of those things and just recognize that you can't stop short and say, yes, he was a good teacher and ignore his teachings. And you know what Jesus taught most on? And I know this because I've ran the numbers. I've counted the verses and tagged them myself. The number one thing Jesus talks about is himself, who he is. You go, Yes, I believe Jesus was significant and unique in all of humanity. I challenge you, could he be more unique than you currently understand? I'm not afraid of you regarding Jesus according to the flesh as long as you actually weigh that to its full conclusions. Was there ever a man like this? Was there ever a man who taught like this? Was there ever a man who changed the world more than this? But if you come up short and you just leave it there, then you're not really paying attention. G.K. Chesterton said that it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. He says Christianity has been found difficult and left untried. And I would say this morning it's the same thing of Christ. It's not that he has fallen against the challenges of our world, written off as irrelevant. It's that he's been ignored. The heart of the gospel is that God has done what we could not do to give us what we don't deserve and to change us in who we will, into who we will never be without his help. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that this deep truth would shape our lives. That we would be able to look at our life and say, I am the old creation as it is. I am not enough and I need Jesus to save me. That we would look at our life and all of the baggage that we carry in our past and we would say, behold, the old has passed away. That we would look at the trials and temptations and challenges that lay before us and the call of Jesus Christ and we would say, I am a new creation. That who we are would not excuse us from what we are becoming. I pray, Lord, that when we are tempted, we will learn to lean on the power of your spirit to cry out for deliverance, to not heed the old man, to not try and fight against the old man with ourselves, which is just the old man, but that we would really tap into what you're doing in Jesus Christ, that we would be able to say like Paul, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. And with this, we say confidently, change us, transform us. Even the places where we're holding on to, even the places where we're not ready for you to change, Lord, we humbly lay it before you and say, even so, come, Lord Jesus, change us. And we thank you for the depth of this plan, Lord. You didn't just give us instruction or even a teacher. You gave us a savior. And that savior makes all things new.